Is what you always ask the, your kids to do. Pick up their toys. <laughs> that's that's a big one. They're everywhere. Yeah. They don't do it. That's why I have to keep asking. always ask. Stop fighting. Stop fighting. Stop yelling at each other. Stop. 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 Always stop. Fighting. Stop fighting. Stop messing with your little brother. <laughs> what's your What's your favorite thing about mom? Ziggy, what, what else does she ask you to do? Be kind. Be kind. Are you guys mean to each other? No. Only sometimes. What do you love most about your mom? That she's always there for us when we have problems. My favorite thing about my mom is that she loves us. Well, hello, Heritage. I want to welcome all of you to week two of Family Tree, a journey where we're just looking at a bit of the who, what, why, and how of family. And I want to welcome all of our church family, our Bettendorf crew, those of you over here at Rock Island, and each of you joining us online. Last week, we kicked this thing off with just looking at a bit of what family is and God's intent for family. We even looked at how we can start to add quality to our quantity of time. And if you missed that, you can find it at heritageqc.com. But we're going to continue the journey and take another step this week, and still with the understanding that whether you're married or single, young or old, have kids or don't have kids, this series is for you. Because wherever you are, whoever you are, God wants to use you for good, especially in your family. And so we're looking at how that actually works and how that happens. Now, I recently recognized and came across a statement that said that happiness is having a large, loving, caring, close-knit family in another city. <laughs> now, that's funny whether you feel that way or not. <laughs> because, because family is this odd, just collision. It's a connecting point of people, genealogy, history, personalities, drama, expectations, and rules. It's this unique connecting point, this intersection. It's almost like a junction that has the potential to have great dysfunction. We could even call family the dysfunction junction. <laughs> dysfunction junction is a place that all that connects together. And you may think based on your family patterns and based on ongoing issues in your family and family drama and those unspoken rules that, that your family is the one who puts the fun in dysfunction. But quite honestly, every family puts a certain amount of fun in their own dysfunction. Because there is no normal family. We're all abnormal. We're all weird. We all have challenges. But listen, what we do in those dynamics, that, that matters. How we respond matters. And if we can understand how the patterns of dysfunction start and how they stop, that's huge. Because we can actually see them change. There's, there's no normal family. And God actually knew that, and therefore he put moms right in the middle. And many, not all moms, are a breath of fresh air in the midst of that dysfunction. Some moms can say what this mom said to their child. I plan to give you love, nurturing, and just enough dysfunction to make you funny. That mom's got swag. Moms can be a breath of fresh air in the midst of the dysfunction, not because they're perfect, but because they can help us move through and navigate that dysfunction. Now, I want to acknowledge that, that Mother's Day can be a bit of a mixed bag for some of us. For those of us who have lost our moms, for those moms who have lost a child, this weekend's bittersweet. 
There's an appreciation for the journey, but there's also a tension in the loss and pain. It's bittersweet. Then there are some who have not yet been able to have children, haven't given physical birth to children. And there's a whole other set of tensions in this weekend. But I want you to know that the beauty of being a mother can still be a reality for you. As you love and live in a manner that people get to see God. Because moms help us see God. Moms gives us, gives us a, they give us a portrait of who God is. Let me show you what I mean. Check this out. Moms help us see God. You know, part of being a mom is that physically giving birth to child reality. But it's not limited to that. We can have kids by physical birth, but we can also have kids by spiritual birth. We can have spiritual kids and spiritual grandkids. And the beauty about what a mom is is someone who, who does inspire, who does comfort, who loves and leads and cares and Today I want to say thank you to our moms. I want you to know you're appreciated. And I hope that you feel the love of your family, but more importantly, I hope you feel the love of the Lord Jesus today. Because we love you, and he loves you. One more thought about our moms. I actually came across a conversation recently between a child and a father, and the child turned to the father and said, Dad, what's a man? 
And dad responded by saying, a man is someone who loves unconditionally, protects always and cares deeply. And after a brief moment of reflection, the child said, when I grow up, I want to be a man like mom. <laughs> Moms are awesome. Moms are awesome. They, they are actually positioned to really help us deal with the dysfunction we face. They're, help, they're, they're positioned to help us deal with the patterns that that, that dysfunction resides in. And, and that's important because defunct, the, those patterns matter. Even the Apostle Paul wrote about patterns in Romans. Here's what he said. He said, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. See, Paul understood that God calls us to make a decision for how we're going to live, what pattern we're going to live by, what, what agenda we're going to live by. And Paul had to make this decision, and he's imploring us to make the same decision, not to live by the pattern of this world, a world that rejects God, a world that desires wrong things and, and, and discards right things, just sets those things aside, a world that, that embraces patterns of dysfunction that run counter to, to how God works. And if... if if we follow the patterns of this world, our family suffers. It suffers. Because the patterns we live by define us. The patterns we live by define us and our family. They define us and our family. That's your first fill-in if you're tracking along in the sermon note guide. Just encourage you to use that today as we study God's word. They define us and our family. Now, one of my Still one of my all-time favorite family stories is about the young couple who had their first ham dinner inside their new apartment. And when, when the bride pulled out that ham and got ready to cook it, she cut off both ends of the ham with a butcher knife and took those ends and threw them in the trash. And the husband was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? Why did you do that? And she said, well, I, I don't know. I, it's the way I was taught to cook a ham. I, my mother did that, and I think it brings out the flavor. Well, her husband wasn't satisfied with that, so he called his mother-in-law. Say, hey, mom, I got a question. Why do you cut off the ends of the ham before you cook it? His mother-in-law said, well, I'm not really sure. I know my mom did it that way, and her ham was delicious. So still unsatisfied, that husband got off the phone, and he called his wife's grandmother. He said, Grandma, I've got a very important question for you. Why do you cut off the ends of the ham before you cook it? And in a wispy voice, she said, oh, dear, that's easy. I cut off the ends of the ham so it'll fit in my pan. Listen, the patterns we live by define us and our family. And this is why we're having the family tree conversation. It's why last week we took time to begin to understand the importance of having the right conversation at the right time. And we looked at that out of the teaching of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And I want to go back to that for just a moment. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is Moses saying, And you must commit yourselves wholeheartedly to these commands that I am giving you today. Repeat them again and again to your children. Talk about them when you are at home and when you are on the road and when you are going to bed and when you are getting up. Look, Moses identifies four specific times that the people of God are to recall the instructions of God to really add quality to quantity. And it's at home, on the road, going to bed and getting up. Four distinct times. So here's what we're doing. We're actually having this conversation by thinking about four arenas that we can do or engage in those four times. They are time, it's communication, role, and goal. It's us thinking intentionally about the time we have, what we're communicating, the role we have in that moment, and the goal we're trying to accomplish. So these four things become the, basically the, 
the lens by which we look at the four different times that Moses identified. We're calling those times morning, drive, meals, and night. Those four moments become kind of those touch points that run through the other four arenas. And we can slide those over to time, but they still are the moments that these touch points of what we're communicating, the role we have, and the goal we have. And I want to give you just a little bit more insight into the communication column. So when we have this moment of time in the morning with our kids or grandkids, with the physical kids or the spiritual kids, that we have these moments of encouraging words, that that morning time is a place to give encouraging words. That's what we want to communicate in that morning moment. When it comes to the drive time, on the way to school, this is informal dialogue time. Just engage in conversation with informal subjects, which then positions us at meal times to have formal conversations. You go a little bit deeper, a little more significant, maybe spiritual realities, just deeper things. And then that leaves us at nighttime for intimate words, where we can speak to the heart, where we can communicate love, love for them, love for God. These are the communication elements for how we have those touch points in those four times. This is a great place to start. Last week, we gave you some specific starter questions around meals. This week in your sermon note guide are starter questions for the informal dialogue around drive time. I encourage you to look at those. And if you have preschool or elementary kids in your world, kids or grandkids, I encourage you, if you've got a smartphone, to download the Parent Q app. It costs $2. It's worth it. It directly connects to this principle, these principles, and it connects to the, the curriculum that we use across our heritage network. So what's happening with our kids right now, it connects to this, which can connect to what you do in each of these four times through the, throughout the course of a week. Really encourage you to engage that. This is a great place to start. This is where we're trying to walk in this whole family tree journey so that we're adding quality to quantity, being intentional. But I gotta tell you, one of the obstacles for us actually living into this is generational sin. The failure of one generation affecting another. Because what we do matters. Our actions can influence other generations to come. And the failure of one generation can affect another. That's generational sin. That's dysfunction junction. However, many people think of generational sin in terms of our choices dooming our kids or grandkids to punishment and hardship because of what we've done. That is not the reality we live in, especially in Jesus Christ. Yet there are a couple of verses in Scripture that have actually caused us to misinterpret how the sin of one generation affects another. It has really positioned many in the church to be vulnerable to thinking that has held them captive rather than led them into freedom. One of those is found in Exodus 20, verse 5. The other is in, in Numbers 14, 18. They, they say basically the same thing, but let's look at Numbers 14, 18. It says, the Lord is slow to anger, abounding in love and forgiving sin and rebellion. Yet he does not leave the guilty punished. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Oh, snap. If you read that, it's like, whoa, gut check. There's a sinking feeling in your stomach to realize that maybe what I'm doing is actually going to impact the, my kids and my kids' kids and beyond. And at first glance, that seems to make sense. It was even a popular sentiment embraced in the Old Testament, but that is not how it works. In fact, there are other scriptures that, that directly reframe this subject. 
One of those is found in Deuteronomy, same book that Moses identified the four times. This is Deuteronomy chapter 24. Parents are not to be put to death for their children. Let me just, the death piece. The wages of sin is death. So because we sin, death is imminent. So that's what's being expressed here. Parents are not to be put to death for their, for, for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Okay, that feels a little better. I can live with that. But what about that first verse? That, that numbers passage? That, that concept, that curse mentality is pervasive. It even found its way into the New Testament. You may recall when Jesus was just walking with his disciples one day and they came across a guy who had been blind since birth. It was in John chapter 9. His disciples turn to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, hey, who sinned, this guy or his parents, that he's born blind? And Jesus is like, Neither. This happened so that the glory and work of God could be revealed in his life. Now, there's a lot in that statement that Jesus made. Don't have time to unpack it all. But I share that moment because there was a clear curse perspective prevalent then. And I believe it's prevalent now. And it's wrong. It's not how it works. Punishment is not passed as a curse. Just as faith is not passed generational sin is very real. I want you to understand that. Generational sin is very real. The failure of one generation affecting another. But it's not a curse. It's not a curse. Many get caught up in the curse mentality, especially when trying to explain away the dysfunction of your family. But generational sin is not a curse. It's a pattern. Generational sin is not a curse. It's a pattern. It's a what? It's a pattern. Look, we have freedom in Jesus. We saw that in our He Still Moves Stones series, and that's also online. You can check it out if you missed that. But listen, bondage is not automatically passed, just like faith is not automatically passed. Our faith is our own. We're not saved because our parents are saved. We have to choose. And the same is true when it comes to the patterns of sin in our family. We have to choose. Generational sin is not a curse. It's the ripple and impact of choices. And those choices are often the result of pursuing our own agenda at the expense of God's best. Let me give you one example of how this played out in a family. Here's what I want to do. I just want to create two columns. One is who and the other is when. Okay? The when is all in Genesis. Everything I'm going to reference is from the book of Genesis. So everything in this column is referencing out of Genesis. Everything out of this column is one family. One family that started with a man that I'm going to starting point with, a man by the name of Abraham. Abraham. Abraham was, was chosen by God. He was selected by God to be the patriarch of his people, the, the God's people, the, the father of nations. And God did really, really cool things with Abraham, lots of cool things. But there's a point in Abraham's journey out of his own dysfunction and a pattern that was in his life that out of fear... In a moment, he was married to a woman by the name of Sarah, and Sarah was beautiful, and he was afraid that someone would kill him to get Sarah. So out of that fear, in self-preservation, he lies and says that Sarah is not his wife. And as a result, in Genesis chapter 12, Pharaoh takes Sarah as his wife. It's messed up. But it was selfish, self-preservation that led him to that deception. 
Now, God intervenes in that moment, and it's wonderful and cool, and, and I hope that Abraham would learn his lesson. But in Genesis chapter 20, facing King Abimelech, Abraham does the same thing. Lies and said his wife is not his wife. Selfish deception. It's horrible. But again, God intervenes in that moment. Here's where this gets interesting, though. So Abraham goes on to have some kids. One of those children is named Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah. And in Genesis chapter 26, out of fear and a need to, to, a sense of needing to self-preserve, he lies and says his wife is not his wife to King Abimelech. <laughs> now there's some debate of whether it's the same King Abimelech, but it's the same name. And if it is the same king, that dude needs to stay away from this family. <laughs> Are you seeing a pattern? Generational sin is not a curse, it's a pattern. Let's go a little bit further. Isaac has some kids. One of those is Jacob. Remember the story of Jacob and Esau. Back it up a little bit. Rebecca, who heard or knew her husband lied about her, maybe Jacob heard about his dad lying and maybe his grandfather lying. Rebecca and Jacob develop a plan in, 20, in verse, or chapter 27 of Genesis where they deceive Isaac into stealing the birthright from Esau and giving it to Jacob. Generational sin is a curse, not a pattern. Ironically, Jacob goes on to have this unusual encounter with his uncle Laban, who his uncle Laban deceives Jacob. Then when he tries to marry Rachel, working seven years to marry Rachel, Laban deceives him into marrying his oldest daughter first. So Jacob has to work seven years for Leah, seven years for Rachel. Selfish deception. Leah ends up having ten sons to Jacob. In chapter 37 of Genesis... Those ten sons lie to Jacob and tell him that his favorite son Joseph is dead when they actually threw him in a pit and sold him to slavery. Generational sin. It's not a curse, it's a pattern. Now, that pattern stops because of one person. Generational sin is a curse, not a pattern. The pattern of deception that ran through this family continued to generations until it got to one. It continued for generations because that family believed a lie. The lie that deception or lying is an acceptable, valid route to good things. That's, that selfish deception is okay, and it never is. It's not. It never is. But that lie positioned that family, ripped through that family for generations to come until they got to Joseph. Ripped through, the, ripped through that family. And it serves for us to be an example of what happens when we pursue our agenda at the expense of God's best. Generational sin is not a curse. It's a what? It's a pattern. Now, God does not condemn anyone for sins they don't commit. You may say, well, what do you do with Numbers 14? Well, part of it's how we read it, put it in the context, understand the relationship to a nation at the time. But most important is to always consider every scripture in light of other scriptures. So let's do that. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Exodus, excuse me, Ezekiel 18. Ezekiel 18. You've got Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. You hit Ezekiel. Daniel's too far. We're in Ezekiel chapter 18, and we're picking up where Israel has fallen prey to the same thinking. In Ezekiel's day, they're thinking that, that it's a curse and not simply a reality of a pattern. And God is having, therefore, to be prompted to address it. And here's what he does, starting with verse 1 in Ezekiel 18. Then another message came to me from the Lord. Why do you quote this proverb concerning the land of Israel? 
The parents have eaten sour grapes, but their children's mouths pucker at the taste. As surely as I live, says the sovereign Lord, you will not quote this proverb anymore in Israel. For all people are mine to judge, both parents and children alike. And this is my rule. The person who sins is the one who will die. Okay, so, so what God is doing is he's clarifying for his people how this really works. He's, he's adjusting and correcting their thinking, moving them to understand that sin is an individual responsibility. He even goes on to contrast a righteous man and a violent son. He says the righteous man will have life, the violent son will have death. And then in verse 14, he goes even further to say, well, what if that son has a son? And if that son sees everything that that violent father did but still chooses to do what is right, he will have life. This, he's describing the, the choice we have not to repeat a pattern. And so that son is spared. The son of the son is spared. And you can read that on your own, but the bottom line that we all need to understand is that we all stand before a holy God alone. We stand before a holy God alone. A time will come when we will stand before him and we can't blame shift and we can't point up the family tree. It is just solely us. God will not let us shift the blame anywhere. God will not hold us responsible for the decisions of others, and he will not hold others responsible for the things that we have done. It will just be us. That's why we need Jesus. When we give Jesus authority and control in our life, we, we give him lordship. We find forgiveness for the junk. We also receive the gift of eternal life, and we get to walk in relationship to God. We stand alone before a holy God, with Jesus, and that's a wonderful thing. So in Ezekiel 18, clearly shows that each individual is responsible for their own behaviors and choices. Let's look again back at it at verse 20, continuing on. The person who sins is the one who will die. The, the child will not be punished for the parent's sins, and the parent will not be punished for the child's sins. Righteous people will be rewarded for their own righteous behavior, and wicked people will be punished for their own wickedness. This means that generational sin isn't a curse that we are doomed to repeat or endure. Instead, it is a proclivity that we're positioned to duplicate or embrace, if we so choose. It's not the inevitable curse that some people advocate. Rather, it's a pattern of behavior, accepted behavior, an activity, a habit that we choose to entertain like a legacy of selfish deception that rips through generations of a family. Our sin is our own. We may be influenced by another's choices. We may be a direct victim of somebody else's choices, but we are not doomed to repeat them or cursed by them. Now, parents, this does not mean we can abdicate our responsibility as parents. We significantly shape and inform who our kids are. We greatly influence them by our choices and our example, for better or for worse. I tell you, I already have told my two boys, I'll pay for their first six counseling sessions. I know I've messed them up to some degree. I'm not a perfect parent. But listen, I'm responsible. We do make mistakes. We can pass along behavior and beliefs and mannerisms and perspectives. In fact, all of our friends and family watch and learn from us, especially true of parents and children. Here's an example of how we influence our kids. Check this out. This is a picture of a mother and, their, and her daughter. You see that? Is that caught or taught? Either way, she's following the model and example and mannerisms of her mom. Check this out. This is done subconsciously. You see that? 
The exact same position. Father, son. Now, in case you think this is random, all right, check out these two knuckleheads here. That's me and my oldest son, Joshua, a few years back on a vacation. What do you see? Same stance, same head tilt, same goofy expression. <laughs> we pass our mannerisms and demeanor to our children. But you know what? We can also pass fear. We can pass greed, lust, prejudice, worry. We can pass other things. We pass behaviors and they either lead our children towards holiness or towards sin. And we need to know the difference because it affects generations to come. And passing junk, when we pass that dysfunction, usually happens when we, like Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, believe a lie. That something is a valid avenue to good things in life when it's not. And because we believe a lie, then we and our family pursue our own agenda, compromising God's best in our life, and that is dysfunction junction. And I wonder, what's the big lie in your family today? That thing that shapes your family dynamic. The thing you say, well, that's just the way we are. For Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was the lie that deception was an option. That it was okay if necessary. What's yours? Is it an idolatry? Is it a pride that that says everything's about you? Is it something connected to sexual things that you believe that it's okay, if it feels good, you can just do it? As long as nobody knows, it's fine? Is it a bold deception that, that challenges that God didn't really mean what he said? That we can change it? Is it a prejudice that, that we're superior to other people? What's the lie in your family? Is it judgment, jealousy, addiction, greed? All of those say we deserve more. We're better. What generational pattern of behavior has made your family less? Whatever it is, I want to tell you today, it can change. It can change. No matter the sin, redemption is possible. No matter the sin, redemption is possible. However, I tell you what, many families try to ignore it. They pretend it didn't happen in order to move past it quickly as possible because it's uncomfortable. But when we move past quickly without dealing with it, without having it redeemed, all that does is position the entire family to perpetuate it, to continue it. No matter the sin, redemption is always possible, but we have to address it. Let's go back to Ezekiel 18, verse 21. But if a wicked person turns away from all the, thin, the sins they have committed and keeps all of my decrees and does what is just and right, that person will surely live. They will not die. No matter the sin, redemption is possible. God wants to use you for good, even if you have failed. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they all failed God. But as they worked through repentance, as they turned away from the evil in their life, God was still able to work through them. Whatever your thing is, God can change it. Don't accept what is without considering what can be. And redemption is always possible regardless of what the sin is. The second thing that you need to understand is that changing family patterns requires getting to the heart of the issue. Got to get to the heart of the issue. Can't stay on the surface, can't talk around it. You got to get to the heart of the issue. Ezekiel 18 verses 30 and 31. Therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent, turn away from all of your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. 
rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Great families don't just happen. They require work and they need a new heart and new spirit. They need new patterns. And if we live by the patterns of God, then we can grow great families that lead to deeper, more satisfying relationships. When we can set those new patterns, when we do that, then we go back to what Paul said in Romans 12, then we're able to, to know, to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we follow the patterns of God, we can truly live. We set aside the patterns of this world and we follow Jesus, we can live. And it positions our family to make a difference in this world. Families are one of God's primary missional communities. And when people see families operating well, it's powerful. A family guided by Christ-like patterns can show others the love of God and lead them into relationship through Jesus. But a family guided by conflict or anger or mistrust or criticism or fear or selfish deception will be irrelevant to God's work in this world, outside of his will and outside of his blessing. We need to get to the heart of the matter. Great families and relationships don't happen. It takes work. We need new patterns. So get to the heart. Finally, and perhaps most significantly, change starts with you. Change starts with you, not somebody else. The ripple in Abraham's family lasted for generations until it got to Joseph. Look, he ended it. And whoever you are, God can use you for good. You can put an end to it. You can keep it from passing on to another generation. Isaac could have stopped it. He didn't. Jacob could have stopped it. He didn't. They didn't, but you can. You can. You can be the Joseph in your family tree. The question is, will you? You know, sometimes the dysfunction in that junction that we face, that, that dysfunction is... It creates choices that we wish were not the choices we had. And then we can start to believe the lie that we have no choice at all. But you do. The change starts with you. In Second Peter, Peter wrote these words. His divine power, that would be Jesus, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. We have everything we need, and we're positioned to influence, to teach, to shape. What we do matters, not in the context of a curse, but in the context of influence, to showing, just showing the next generation how to live. We have all we need to do that. Look, even if you're not the key influencer in your family, you still have influence. Change is possible. If, if lying is a problem in your family, don't lie. If... if Fighting in anger and hostility is a problem in your family. Don't fight in anger. If sexual immorality is a problem in your family, don't follow that path. Choose better. Choose holiness. Change starts with you. You can be the one to end the dysfunction in your family. But listen, I don't want you to go home and start beating on your family about all the big hairy sins in your family. <laughs> That's not the place to start. The place to start is with you first. Your heart, your posture, your participation in that sin. Change starts with you. Take time to learn and prepare. Hear from the Holy Spirit how he wants to use you for good. We're going to continue in our series and give a few more handholds for how that might work out for you in a couple of areas. But the change starts with you. But let me say this. 
if the dysfunction in your family is, is currently doing ongoing harm, you need to address it. If the dysfunction is criminal in your family, you need to address it now. But if the dysfunction is more subtle, be willing to walk a journey so redemption can occur. It was many years before Joseph was positioned to do what he did. And his story wasn't pretty. Uh, most of the time we think about Joseph, we, we go from the beginning to the end where he was in charge and leadership in Egypt. But his journey was marked by tons of pits and prisons. He was betrayed. He was falsely accused. He was mistreated. He was forgotten. All kinds of hardships happened in Joseph's world. But each of those things, God was using to position Joseph to be the man that he wanted him to be so he could be the one to stop it. I firmly believe that God was sick of this. And he used the things in Joseph's life to position Joseph to be the one to say no more. I believe God's doing the same thing in many of you. And he wants you to be the one to end it. The change starts with you. This is not about what others have done or what others will do. This is about you now and how you will live. It matters. You can be the one to change it in the power of Jesus. So what's God asking you to change in your family cycle? What's he asking you to change in your cycle? It, maybe it's a pattern that needs to stop. Maybe it's a deception. It's that generational sin that's been passed on and on. There's a big lie, and you need to bring truth into that moment. Look, if your relationships aren't what they should be, today is a day to change that. You want some different results? You need to change the dynamic. Because if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've always gotten. Now, let me just say this. If you're struggling in this dynamic because you're looking at the generations that have followed you, and they're the ones that are believing a lie, the change still starts with you. Pray. You got to be the one to pray. And then add quality to the quantity. Use the four times, those four touch points, to begin to invest in your family in a way where God can intervene. It is never too late. Never too late to lay a foundation. Never too late to do the right thing. Never too late to say, I'm going to be the one that says this stops. We each have a choice to decide the pattern we live by. That decision can affect generations to come. Our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids. In Abraham's family, people repeatedly lived by the world's pattern because he and Sarah set that tone. They defined a culture in their family for years until they got to one. One who said no more. Perhaps that's you. I believe that if God has revealed to you the dysfunction, that you are the one. What's God asking you to change in your family cycle? It may be really public or private. It may be big or may be small. But it only takes one to say no more for the cycle to stop. Let's pray together. Lord, I recognize that in this world there is all kinds of dysfunction. And yeah, it shows up in family uniquely. But Lord, you have still loved us in a manner where you have made a way for us to come back to relationship with you. You do hold us accountable for the things that we do, but through Jesus, that stuff can be covered and we can be made right before you. We can, we can be positioned in relationship with you and all the junk and the dysfunction of our past can be removed from us, and I thank you for that. And I pray for those that have not made that decision, but they would today, and they would start a new pattern in their family. 
God, for those that are finding themselves stuck in family right now with dysfunction and, and have seen a generational cycle continue, may they have the wisdom and courage to know how you want them to change that. How to be the one that says no more. How to position the next generations to come to live in true freedom. Not to follow that pattern any further. I know some of that can be simple and, and done privately, but some of it is big and some of it's public and just very complex. But I pray in the midst of that process, God, that you would give us wisdom to know what our part is. You're the one who actually changes. You're the one who actually sets free. It's not us, but may we be faithful in those moments and may your will be done. And may we not back away. May we not choose our own agenda, but may we choose your best as we step boldly, boldly into the things you call us to. I I love you, Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.